Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. So it sounds like we have some exciting stuff to talk about today. I think I'll have you go first. All right. I want to talk about an article from the August 2013 issue of Pediatrics in Review. It's titled, Complementary, Holistic, and Integrative Medicine, Advice for Clinicians on Herbs and Breastfeeding by Drs. Butzinska et al., um, who are mostly from Massachusetts. This article was written for pediatricians, and the authors note that these providers need to be aware that many breastfeeding mothers use herbal supplements despite a lack of regulatory guidelines and rigorous scientific evaluation. It also highlights several resources on the safety and efficacy of herbs during breastfeeding that can help guide our recommendations. So in the United States, herbal products are classified as dietary supplements. This regulatory category was created by a law called the Dietary Supplements Health and Education Act It defines dietary supplements as herbs and other botanicals, vitamins, minerals, enzymes, and certain other natural substances. These herbal medicines are held to different regulatory standards than prescription medicines as far as testing and marketing. Makers are also prohibited from making claims that they treat, prevent, or cure any disease or condition. In addition, no regulatory guidelines exist to set a standardized risk assessment to determine their safety and efficacy during breastfeeding. And as we know, women from many cultures use herbal remedies for breastfeeding and postpartum support. Uses include increasing milk supply, relief of engorgement, treating mastitis, and other uses not related to lactation. Some of the compounds in these herbs enter human milk and um, using the same um, pharmacologic um, guidelines that we know from other foods and medicines. So the authors touch on some commonly used herbs and some current research. First, they discuss galactagogues, which are substances that increase milk production. These include common culinary herbs as well as other herbs. Um, Some of these are fenugreek seed, fennel seed, anise seed, caraway seed, alfalfa herb, goat fruit herb, nettle leaf, marshmallow root, blessed thistle seed, and torbangan herb. Some of those I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. Although some have been used for several thousands of years, scientific research is limited and little is known about the mechanism of action or the relative efficacy of different herbs. Fenugreek is one of the most widely used and is included in the Food and Drug Administration's list of herbs 
generally regarded as safe. And so this list of GRAS, generally regarded as safe, is a big list that the FDA keeps um, just saying that there have not been reports of really bad side effects from these herbs. Um, side effects that have been reported include abdominal discomfort, diarrhea, and a maple-like odor for sweat, blood, and urine in the mom or the baby. Also, clinicians should be aware that a few case reports of fenugreek allergy suggest some cross-reactivity with peanut allergens. Next, the authors note that many products on the market contain multiple ingredients and very few studies have examined these products and breastfeeding. They go into a couple of the studies. Um, something that was new to me from this article is that some online resources recommend the use of comfrey leaf and borage leaf as galacticogs, but clinicians should discourage the ingestion of these by mothers because they contain pyrrolizidine alkaloids, which can cause liver damage and cross into breast milk. You're saying that that's you for the. Idea? You're saying that's for the borage and the comfrey. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what the authors say. Um, Non-galactagog herbs discussed by the authors include senna, garlic, and St. John's wort. And a table in the article lists 10 um, human observational trials of the use of herbs during lactation. Next, the authors discuss safety. They remind us that the very limited number of studies contribute to numerous lactation resources having mixed reports and safety recommendations. This is confusing for clinicians and patients. No uniform standards exist among the breastfeeding resources, and authors interpret available in vitro, in vivo, and clinical data within their own classification system. This problem is compounded, pardon the pun, because it's difficult to compare studies done on different herb species, doses, and types of preparation. Finally, it's important to keep in mind the quality of the product being used. Sometimes heavy metals or pesticides are found in herbal supplements on the U.S. market. Product contamination may be decreasing due to new FDA-mandated good manufacturing practices required since 2008. However, clinicians should remain alert to the possibility of heavy metal exposures such as mercury, lead, cadmium, and arsenic in nursing mothers who are using herbal remedies particularly if they come from China or the Indian subcontinent. Mm. Also of note, many herbal preparations contain from 20 to 90% alcohol, which is usually not of concern in moms because they're taking very small volumes, but could be of more concern if they're applied topically to the breast or given directly, directly to infants. Clinicians should always inquire about herbal use by mother and infant and counsel accordingly. And this paper once again highlights the need for additional well-designed studies on the effects of herbs on breastfeeding diets. So it was really for people that don't know a lot about what herbs nursing women are taking, because I think you and I um, and others who are in the breastfeeding world are well aware of all these galactagogues. And probably That's certainly the most common class that I encounter when I'm talking to my patients. Yeah, yeah, and they, and so people who are already knowledgeable about breastfeeding probably need to understand that some of these herbs that come from other countries could be contaminated, 
and that would be best to to use organic herbs if possible. Um, I use Consumer Labs and try yeah, to find. Yeah, they have a really good reputation. Yeah, and try to find right brands that are reputable that are tested and you know what's in them. Yeah. Yeah, and I find also that screening for the use of herbs can also help me as sort of a red flag that mom is concerned about her milk supply because um, perceived low milk supply is the most common cause of early cessation of breastfeeding. And sometimes moms are taking these herbs because they perceive their milk supply to be low, but they haven't necessarily had their concerns addressed. And so seeing that window into what's going on with them can make a really big difference into intervening and maybe, you know, if they have a supply problem, making sure they're doing all of the other things with position and latch and frequent emptying of their breasts that they need to do, or if their supply is good, just reassuring them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I'm always, I'm oftentimes surprised when I see women for, like, sore nipples or some other kind of problem and then they say, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm taking fenugreek. And then there's a whole other conversation about milk supply and and where they've been and where they're going with their supplies. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's definitely a red flag that that, that conversation has to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a lot of moms um, that I take care of from other countries are taking, you know, teas or just things that I, I really don't have a good way to find out what it is that are given to them by their families. Right. And those are often ones that I worry um, more about the purity of the compounds and, you know, just not knowing what's in it. Right, right. Yeah. Although I find that um, when I have families where a, where the mother comes from, like China, India, Indonesia, somewhere like that, um, they're preparing these items fresh, like they're grinding the fenugreek seed and they're adding um, the fennel to the food and the garlic to the food. And it's all like part of the food rather than everything being taken as a capsule. Or maybe it's isolated as an herb, but then crushed and put into milk or something like that. That's more of just a natural way of taking it. I've seen quite a few people come in with um, bottles that I uh, are little little vials of just you. I have no way to know what it is. Somebody <laughs> brought over this mixture of powder from from somewhere, but I think right. it's good that they're bringing this up in sort of the general pediatric literature for people who don't know very much about um, this common use and kind of bringing it to the attention of general pediatricians. Right. Absolutely. Good. Okay. Well. I have two things. Um, the first one is entitled Breastfeeding and Early White Matter Development, a Cross-Sectional Study, which was published in May um, of 2013 in the journal NeuroImage. Authors are uh, Dioni, Dean, Piriatinsky, and all. So you and I both are aware that there's a lot of evidence that breastfeeding babies have higher IQs and improved cognitive skills compared to babies who have been breastfed. And this difference is even seen among adolescents um, who were uh, breastfed. And there's oftentimes a discussion about whether or not these differences have to do with other factors like 
the way the babies were nurtured and the act of nursing and the difference in child rearing between a breastfeeding family and a formula feeding family. Um, because, uh, for example, breastfeeding moms tend to be more highly educated. Um, they're more likely to be in a higher socioeconomic group, et cetera. Um, but a lot of studies now are showing that even when these things are controlled for, there seems to still be this relationship between breastfeeding and um, higher IQ and higher cognitive skills. So these authors wanted to pursue um, some sort of biologic plausibility for this, meaning where is the evidence when you actually look at the brain or test the brain to see really what's going on? Why why does this relationship occur? And um, usually if you can find a biologic, something that's uh, a biologic theory, something that seems plausible, it's more likely to be the case that the relationship is a true relationship. That's really interesting. Yeah. So... In this, so in this study, they looked at the difference in brain development um, as seen on imaging between breastfed and formula-fed babies. So the, the, what this article is really interesting because the introduction, in their introduction, they summarize a lot of findings that I was not aware of. And they actually report um, on some studies that adolescents who are breastfed as infants have a larger volume of white matter in the brain as well as a subcortical gray matter and parietal lobe cortical thickness. So the brains are basically heftier than be, than, um, than adolescents who are not breastfed. And then, there, and then another way of looking at the brain is looking at what are called evoked potentials, which is sort of like the speed of nerve response. Um, and th some of those studies show that uh, formula-fed babies have a delay in their evoked potentials in nerves that provide vision and hearing, um, and this sort of implies that the myelination of those nerves or the development of that myelin sheath around the nerve is delayed or more immature compared to uh, breastfed babies. And myelin, uh, as you remember from medical school, is that um, is the sheath that covers the nerves and it provides like that more efficient transmission of the message through the nerve so that like people who have multiple sclerosis, they have disrupted myelin and so they actually lose a lot of their coordination. And as humans mature, myelin matures, the, um, the myelin layers mature, which which um, is a reason why we become much more coordinated as we get older. So um, in this study, what they wanted to look at was the development of myelin, basically, in, in children who were breastfed versus formula-fed. So they enrolled 133 healthy toddlers who were anywhere between the ages of 10 months and 4 years of age, and they divided them into three groups. Group 1 had 85 children, and they were all breastfed for at least 90 days. I mean, and I mean exclusively breastfed. They didn't receive anything else for at least 90 days. And there was a variation in terms of how long they ended up breastfeeding. Some breastfed as long as two and a half years. Group two had 38 children, and they only received formula. And group three had 51 children who received a mixture of formula and breast milk. So each of these children went through sort of a short-lasting MRI that looked at the maturity of the myelin formation in the brain. So they found that group one, the breastfed group, had more advanced development of myelin in the areas of the brain that are responsible for things like higher cognitive function, 
like um, executive functioning, where you're making decisions, language, and socio, so, so, social emotional functioning. In addition, in addition, in this study, they actually did psychological tests too, like your typical, you know, Baylor and all these other tests. Um, and what they found, in addition, is that group one, the breastfed group, scored higher on tests that matched the areas of the brain where they had more myelin, which is so interesting. And then, How old were they when they did the psychological testing? They were anywhere between 10 months and four years of age. Okay. And then they looked at the effect of extended breastfeeding because in that breastfed group, there was a, there was a variation in terms of how long the kids breastfed. And they found that the longer the child breastfed, the higher the myelin development. And, um, and then when they tested them, they found that the kids who breastfed longer had increased performance in these same areas in language, visual reception, and motor control. And that's what other studies show, too. You know, studies that look at cognitive development in breastfeeding, it, there does seem to be a dose relationship where there is higher functioning the longer that a child breastfeeds. Mm-hmm. So the theory about this is that breast milk has those essential long-chain fatty acids, the docosa hexanoic acid, which is DHA, and the arachidonic acid, which is AA. And the brain, the brain is made up of you know lots of fatty acids, and 20% of the fatty acids in the brain happen to be DHA and AA. Um, so it's thought that because breast milk has so much more DHA and AA, that that's why the brain develops or matures faster, basically with myelin development um, in breastfed babies versus uh, formula-fed babies. There's also um, more cholesterol in uh, breast milk than in formula, um, and that also may be contributing as well. So I thought that was really interesting, you know, because there's always this question of, well, how much of this really is the nurturing? Um, And I think now that we have this, all this evidence of difference in brain development, I think it's pretty clear that breast milk does make a huge difference. And I think that this is another factor that parents need to think about when they're thinking about the duration of breastfeeding and making accommodations to make sure the breastfeeding can can go along as, as well as it needs to in order to be successful. That is so cool. Yeah, very interesting. So um, the second one that I just want to mention briefly is about breastfeeding and obesity. Um, And this is entitled Breastfeeding and Obesity Among School Children, a nationwide longitudinal study in Japan. So, you know, I think that our audience has heard a lot about obesity and breastfeeding from us. We've talked about it before. And even in our last podcast, we talked about the World Health Organization um, review because they had also reviewed the topic of obesity and breastfeeding. And they found after review in the literature, that there still is a definite effect of breastfeeding on obesity. But this is important because this Japanese study, because the old the studies at the World Health Organization reviewed were largely studies with white um, children. And this is a huge Asian population. So I thought I would bring it up. And it was just published like a couple days ago. Um, it was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, in, in August of 2013. So um, this study actually started in Japan in 2001 when they decided to send out annual surveys to about 50,000 families asking all kinds of questions about child rearing and infant feeding and 
um, other parenting questions, and this is just a small, the infant feeding is just a small part of the survey. So the families received follow-up surveys every year, and this report is one of the earliest reports from all this data, just focusing on infant feeding. So what they did is they took a group of seven-year-olds, so it would be the seventh year that the families received the surveys, and then and then also in the eighth year, a different set of families that received the surveys, and they took those kids and they measured them. They measured their height and their weight. So they ended up with about 30,000 seven-year-olds and 30,000 eight-year-olds, and they adjusted for all the typical things, confounding factors that can contribute to obesity, like socioeconomic status, smoking, parental working status, the amount of time the kids watch TV and stuff like that. So at seven years of age, 7.3% of the children were overweight and 2.1% were obese. And they basically found that the longer a child was breastfed, the lower the risk of overweight and obesity. And the numbers looked almost exactly the same for the eight-year-olds. When they did a year later, another group, kind of like another trial at the same experiment, they got this, pretty much the same results. And so the numbers that they came up with were that if a, if a child is breastfed exclusively for six to seven months, meaning no formula, no solids or anything, they have a 15% reduced risk of being overweight and a 45% reduced risk of being obese. So I thought that was wow. really powerful because it's such a huge population of, of people. And the fact that oh, they got cool. pretty much the same results you know, for the group, for the seven-year-olds and the eight-year-olds, at you know, so two different populations a year apart, I thought was really pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. That is really interesting, and it is important for us to have some more diverse populations in our right. studies. Well, they're probably the leanest people on earth, actually. Yeah, since when you said the when you said the re the reported rate of obesity and overweight, my mouth felt bubble open because it is so much lower than the population that I see here in LA. Right. Oh yes, in the United States. I mean, my gosh, what is it like? Almost half of children are overweight in this country, or something like that. So yeah, it's really, really huge difference. But um, but you know, when you have such a small percent of obesity. You do need large numbers, but they obviously had the numbers to to be able to calculate that reduction in in risk. So, and the other thing is that in in Japan, it's a very small population that formula feeds. Um, most children are breastfed. So that I was, was wondering about that when you were reporting the results. What is the the rate of babies yeah. that were making it to that six or seven months? Yeah, it wasn't the exclusivity to six to seven months is you know, the, without adding anything else is, is lower, but just having breast milk was like, you know, 80, 90% of uh, children were breastfed to us, you know, to, to a significant extent anyway. So, um, so that's, that's it for today. I hope, um, so I hope that you um, have a good move from Southern California <laughs> to the middle of California. Thanks. It's going to be an exciting weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we'll talk to you again in about a month. Sounds good. All bye. Right. Yeah, bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med dot org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs>